Today on the show, we're once again putting the power of brand in the spotlight. As the saying goes, with power comes responsibility. So we want to explore not only the potential expression of brands' ability to drive change, but also to better understand the ways in which the best businesses and leaders of them are seeking to understand and then to fulfil their obligations by adapting and transforming to meet the urgent challenges ahead. To do this, we're sitting down with the founder of a dynamic and innovative practice to learn how and why he's evolved his thinking about brand as culture and how that manifests across disciplines and whether we're talking about cities and placemaking or making CPG brands more sustainable or ensuring that corporates are genuinely delivering on ESG with actions and not just words. Sam Hornsby is the founder of brand transformation consultancy Triptych, and it's the mission of his company to decode and recode culture, to invent and reinvent brand across sectors and all around the world. Sam's here to talk to us about his journey to this point and explain what that de- and recoding process looks like. We'll look to at a couple of specific areas, the business of placemaking and the need for new social contracts between brands and consumers, and indeed all stakeholders, which will help to demonstrate the way Sam and Triptych operates. Plus, before the end of the show, I'll play you some more of my conversation with the co-founder of Fresh Britain, Bob Sheard, for his take on the power of brand to make a real difference in a more volatile world. All that to come on The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. We start with the founder of brand transformation consultancy, Triptych. That man is Sam Hornsby. Sam, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us and to have you here in the UK, indeed, again, from your US base. Now, we're going to talk about a couple of really interesting areas that I know you've done some fascinating work in in a moment. But on Triptych, first of all, just talk to us about what it does as an organisation fundamentally and on the businesses and your personal origin story. How did you come to be so invested in this idea of decoding and recoding culture? What does that mean for the brands with which you work? I suppose probably the origins of this journey that I've been on as an entrepreneur on on that side probably started with my education in anthropology. So, you know, did my master's in anthropology and archaeology. And it was at that point I became just utterly fascinated by human culture the way it works, the way it operates, people's attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs. And and so when I entered into the world of business, I brought very much that sort of orientation and, and lens and realized that a huge number of the fundamental challenges that business and brand leaders were grappling with, perhaps they weren't even always aware of the fact that they were grappling with them, were cultural challenges, you know, and and sort of concerned how they were performing, engaging with, adding value to or not the kind of the communities and cultures that they operate in. That sort of journey then took me through early parts of my career doing a lot of cultural research for, for business, a lot of sort of market intelligence and primary research, drawing on a lot of the disciplines of sort of academic anthropology. So ethnography and, and you know, trends and, and forecasting, etc. And that's, even today with Triptych, a very sort of strong and important part of our offering. We ground all of our strategy and advisory and the solutions we build in, you know, really, really robust research into people and into culture. So that's the sort of the decoding and the recoding. The decoding is really trying to understand, you know, what matters to people, 
what is shaping their attitudes and values and beliefs today and tomorrow, where, we, where are we going, and then using that intelligence to recode culture in service of business and, and ultimately you know, trying to create a better relationship between business and, and culture. And I suppose one thing, and it's actually something we reflected on a little bit before we we sat down in the studio, is this idea about value, engaging value. Do you find that you fall into great working relationships with clients who share a sense of what delivering real value means? Or in some cases, do you find you need to work together and that once they're exposed to some of your ideas and you tap a bit more deeply into their organisation that you kind of discover together what those are? And does that matter? Do you need to identify those shared values at the start or before the start? Or are you always confident that actually once people start to look through the kinds of lenses you've been describing, you can get there together, as it were? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'd say, it, it, you know, there's a it, it does vary organization to organization. I think one of the things that we've been really focused on really since sort of inception is making sure that we are aligning on the impact that we want the work to have. And that can be sometimes tricky, actually, when you're working on what we call sort of, you know, upstream engagements that might be helping an organization plan a strategy on a sort of three, five plus year sort of time horizon. So, you know, you know, not necessarily seeing it show up in the quarterly results, for example, you know, it's longer sort of term planning, but nonetheless, really sitting down at the beginning of any engagement, any, any assignment to say, what are the impacts, what are the KPIs that we're going to use here? And for us, always, there are business KPIs, brand KPIs, and social KPIs, you know, community-based kind of KPIs that make sure, and I think very positively, more and more organizations, I say the vast majority of, of our clients have developed an even more sort of sophisticated understanding of what their social impact needs to be. So ESG has become sort of a mandate and, and a sort of really important part of the conversation for all business leaders. So there's better and better access to an understanding of what some of those measures are and should be. But we, yeah, we, you know, as part of our consultancy, I suppose, value add is making sure that we, we hold ourselves accountable to those KPIs and help our stakeholders measure them from the jump. But that's the sort of the measurement component when you talk about values and shared values between my business, Triptych, and our, and our client's business. There's also the partnership values piece, which is so, so important. And again, sometimes quite difficult to gauge at the jump, right? So, you know, you go into an organization, you say, you whip out the creds, you say, here we are, and here's all of the, like, you know, the lovely sexy stuff we've done. And they say, oh, lovely, good, you know, let's do some work together. But you, it's very difficult in those interactions to actually understand, well, you know, are you going to be respectful? Are you going to be planful, thoughtful, approachable? Are you going to truly treat this as a partnership? Or is this going to be more transactional or sort of more extractive as a relationship? And I think that's a really, really important part of my experience of, of doing business, of, of leading teams, is trying as quickly as possible to say, hey, on a relationship values basis, on a partnership values basis, is this going to work and can we do good work together? And now, Sammy, you obviously have a, a such a wide breadth of sectors to which you're exposed in your work and partnerships, as you've described, through so many. I thought it might be instructive to look at a couple of specific areas, just so we can kind of see how these kinds of values and ideas work through from, if you like, from inception through to, and it will come to this in, this in the sense of placemaking, a really long and indefinitely long time horizon. Let's talk a bit about the business of placemaking, because I like your read on this and the idea about building great cities, being invested in urbanism is something that's a bit of a monocle perennial since our founding. Talk to me a bit, and, and I know you've got some really interesting clients in this space, which you can perhaps mention. Why is this such a compelling area of interest? I guess, talking back to your, your last answer about, you know, ethnographic study and all the rest, it's just deeply interesting. And your sort of academic curiosity can be sated by by working in this area. But 
Tell us why this is a good thing in terms of the business of placemaking to express some of the things that are really important here. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's lovely to be talking about placemaking because, as you say, I mean, it's a, one of my favorite aspects of engaging with Monocle is, is your editorial focus on it. And very fortunately, it's a space that we've been able to do some really sort of exciting work at, at Striptick. I think in many ways, placemaking as a sort of a, a remit is the petri dish for all of these kind of conversations around culture, around values, around community, around experience. It's very exciting because, you know, it's the childhood Sim City feeling of saying, you know, how, how are we going to build an environment that is values driven, values positive, that is inclusive, that is motivating and that satisfies the needs of modern culture, which are ever changing. We, we are engaging with placemaking clients. We get to think about including the marginalized structurally physically, tangibly, in a placemaking project, we get to think about creating environments for small businesses, family-owned, independent businesses to thrive. And so, as I say, it's a, it's a sort of a perfect petri dish for a lot of the conversations. And I think so many of the macro conversations that we're often having in our lives and in sort of popular media play out in these neighborhoods and play out in these cities day to day. So talking about things like technology, data and privacy, big conversation for, for a lot of people recently. That is a very relevant conversation when you're thinking about building a smart city, building a you know a technology sort of forward city and environment. What are people looking for? What are they scared about? when it comes to living in a sort of a, you know, a high-tech city. Or equally, as I mentioned before, you know, the, the social justice movement, that conversation plays out very, very tangibly when we start to think about rent control, when we start to think about open space for community and for activism. It's just sort of a, a nexus point for, I think, these really important broader cultural conversations. Well, yeah, and I find that really interesting. And how much of a challenge is it then to try and engage with clients who are, you know, commercial enterprises and they have business considerations, even if they can be very idealistic and they may share a lot of your aspirations more broadly, to talk about building capacity for well, these quite abstract concepts, inclusivity, social progress, social cohesion, that's presumably a tricky conversation to have. But I wonder, do you think that the experience of the pandemic and the changes that that's driven, many of which were some of these big secular trends that already happened, but they've kind of all had the accelerator hit. Do you think that's indelibly and irrevocably changed the narrative? And now no big player in real estate, no big city hall would even start the conversation without being more mindful of these. Has that, has that changed for good in your view, Sam? Yeah, I think it has changed for good and I think it's changed for the better in terms of really sort of forefronting some of those conversations and making them absolute, you know, sort of mandates as we think about responsible sort of placemaking. I think one of the challenges that a lot of our clients in this space face, of course, is that the pandemic also wrought real business challenges in terms of urban planning development and real estate in particular. We were, we were talking about this as we were walking around your lovely offices here in terms of working patterns have fundamentally changed. I mean, a lot of businesses need 70 to 75% of the workspace now that they anticipated they needed a couple of years ago because of, of hybrid working and remote working and things like that. So there have been some very difficult challenges to sort of overcome and quite a lot of setbacks actually for some of the major players in that market. But nonetheless, I think while those have to be addressed and, and adjusted for there is now, I think, an even more heightened sense of the responsibility of placemakers to make communities and neighborhoods resilient, insulate them as well from, from some of the shocks that things like pandemics naturally bring. So, you know, how do you make a place that isn't so reliant on commuters or 
tourists for to be self-sufficient and sort of sustaining when you might have a, a sort of a travel lockdown? You know, how do you create a sort of a supportive and adaptive environment or neighborhood that's sort of fit to meet local needs and isn't just a copy-paste sort of blueprint of what a neighborhood or a city should be on some kind of, you know, global playbook? Because unless you are locally adaptive and supportive in that way, the next pandemic will come by and, and wreak even more havoc. It's funny, the way you describe that scenario it makes one wonder that the private sector, some of these big enterprises with whom you work, are better positioned to take a long-term view. And that's counterintuitive because obviously so much of the leadership to make genuine and lasting change in this space, one would imagine should come on the nation-state level, certainly from local government. But I guess there is a an understandable short-termism in some instances, political upheaval. Mm. I don't want to date this recording, <laughs> but we've seen some pretty significant political upheaval right here in the UK <laughs> just in the last couple of days. But it underscores the point that you know, maybe if you are an enigmatic party leader, there's not much point in talking about what happens in 15 years or in 20 years. Is it okay? Do we just have to accept that it's okay for slightly more enlightened players in the private sector to be the leaders? Is that all right? It's a very good question and probably a little bit above my, my pay grade. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I would say, as you say, as with so many things, I think there can be multiple quote-unquote truths at any one time you know the private sector responsibly and rightly has a responsibility to shareholders on a short-term basis and a long-term basis so you know they're engaged with quarterly planning and, and performance but at the same time as you say they do have the opportunity to plan on a 10 20 year basis in ways that a lot of politicians never will and so with that opportunity kind of comes a lot of responsibility. And, you know, I think sort of very interestingly, I've certainly seen in my career over the last sort of 10 years or so, and particularly, you know, being based in, in New York, where I think this is sort of acutely the case, the erosion of trust that we have seen in government and other institutions has created a vacuum in which the private sector has been sort of invited in to play mm. a larger role in, in sort of consumers' lives. You know, people are now looking to these very, very powerful corporate organizations to take a, a stronger stance and take a position and to actually lead us into a better future. And I think really sort of, you know, promisingly and excitingly, we've, as a result of that, are doing more and more work in that space as Triptych in domains like sustainability, domains like social impact, which is wonderful for us because it's motivating and satisfying, I think, on a, on a values basis and never-endingly difficult. It's a very, very challenging space to work. There's a lot of uncertainty. And no, there are standards and there are commitments that people make, but there is a lot of complexity and nuance when you start thinking about the on-the-ground realities of topics like you know, environmental impact and social impact. They're so intersectional. And a lot of our work, actually, with, with some of these corporates has been to point out that intersectionality. You know, we can't just go over here and say we're carbon sequestering and over here say we are you know, bridging the gender pay gap. We have to recognize that issues of gender and the environment are irrevocably intertwined. You know, air pollution is a massive problem for women in terms of reproductive health and fertility, for example. You know, so every single one of these topics is connected. And that's, I think, why it requires real thoughtfulness. Well, one expression of that kind of thoughtfulness is your interest in this idea of social contracts. Actually, the, the discussion we've just had sort of prompts me to go back to this because it was another area that I wanted to talk to you about. It's something you've written about and you're deeply interested in. And I think from your remarks already, we can understand why. Well, hey, I've, you stopped me for asking questions about your pay grade. I'll do it again. <laughs> um, why is it the time for a new social contract? And what kind of relationship and relationships do we need to try and inform by that 
new way of thinking, if the time is indeed now? I think the time absolutely is now. And I think, you know, we, we are entering into an era where companies are, their value and worth to the street and to society can no longer be the sum of their words. It has to be the sum of their actions. And I think we absolutely have to, you know, step into this take action era for people and planet. The reason that's important, I mean, it's especially important now, I think, is to play back to some of the things we just talked about a, a moment ago. Deep erosion of trust as a sort of a backdrop, but ever increasing dire social and environmental circumstances that, um, you know, we have to step up to. And so it's true here as well, actually, unfortunately, but you think about widening inequality you think about the sort of the, the climate disaster we all have a role to play in this and i think there was a a big push where and that, and there's uh, you know the sort of the the purpose driven brand and the sort of the purpose driven company arose in response to that but i feel and i think a lot of us feel that there is still a an enormous gap to bridge between those statements of intent and, and sort of having a purpose and then actually really committing through action. A lot of the clients that, that we work with have very commendably made some very ambitious commitments over the next you know, 10 or so years, setting really admirable 2030 goals. A lot of the time, you know, really positively aligned to shared frameworks, which is great, like the, you know, the UNSG goals and, and so on, but actually now turning to say, well, what does that mean this quarter? the rest of this year and next year and how do we really operationalize that within our very kind of complex businesses again requires a lot of work you know we work for one you know fantastic global spirits portfolio they're an absolute path paver and, and leader in you know esg and, and sort of csr but it's a portfolio of very distinct businesses they've all got their own supply chains they've all got their own agricultural footprints they've all got their own packaging, bottling, distribution. They engage with different community audiences, etc. So taking that big lofty 2030 commitment and breaking it down for a specific brand business, you know, Spirits Maison, and helping them play their part in getting towards their goal is, is where we find ourselves doing a lot of work. And I think connected to that, we're doing a lot of work in making sure that the momentum for that change is coming ground up from the employee base and not just top down from the boardroom again i think you know we can all relate to the feeling of wanting to do more i think everybody wants to be sort of doing their part but it's not always clear if you are a brand marketing manager or a procurement supply chain you know sort of professional within a big company you know what what does that goal and commitment mean for me how should it change the way that i show up for work and the way that i make sort of decisions in my department and kind of in my roles so positively i think we were increasingly getting asked to come in and help create that internal cultural change and that internal cultural momentum so that it is really, as I say, ground up, not just top down. That was the founder and CEO of Triptych, Sam Hornsby. And you can learn more about Sam's journey at triptych.co. And we hope to be checking in again with Sam in future editions to take a deeper dive into some of the projects, people and sectors that he's been talking about today. Next up, well, we have a little more on the transformational power of brand for you lucky listeners. The last time we checked in with Bob Sheard, we talked with the co-founder of innovative agency Fresh Britain about the power of brand, how he came to understand it and how that shaped his entrepreneurial approach. Today, we're hearing more from Bob about 
well, about the potential for that brand power to meet some of humanity's most urgent challenges and to drive meaningful and enduring change in a volatile world. So just how big can you go with some of the brand building principles that Bob outlined last time? Well, I asked him whether it's possible to apply the logic, the practice of his discipline, to ever bigger challenges. When did he first understand that he could apply those learnings, that skill set, on a level even beyond what he'd been doing thus far? I was invited by the chairman of Louis Vuitton Asia to help articulate a vision for India and that that vision for India could then help and inform some politicians that were running for the general election. So it was a kind of... And what was really brilliant about that is I'd been doing some work on meaning systems for brands and looked into all the meaning systems of the world's religions and looking at sort of, you know, Judaism, the sort of teachings of Judaism that enable you to get to the top of the mountain and and enjoy a wonderful and fruitful life through the teachings of Abraham. Then Christianity, their innovation was actually, you get at the top of the mountain, you get everlasting life through the teachings of Jesus. Then you get on into Islam, teachings of Muhammad, get to the top of the mountain, it's paradise. Buddhism gets to the top of the mountain, you reach enlightenment because you've suffered all the way to the top. So you get all these like payoffs at the top. And having brand skills, you can look at those meaning systems. But all of them, except one, say that theirs is the only legitimate way up the mountain. The one that isn't is Hinduism. And they say it doesn't matter how you get to the top. What matters is you get to the top. So every religion has a viable way. It's like Muhammad Ali said, there's water in lakes, there's water in rivers, and there's water in the sea. Just like there is truth in all the religions, it's still truth and it's still water. But Hinduism is the only one, and it's a 15th century religion, so it's quite new, that says everybody else is a legitimate and valid way up there. So it's the one that ultimately could lead to religious tolerance throughout the entire world. Why that was interesting was when you get to the Indian problem, if you just look at an Indian menu it's a cartel of different regions beliefs etc just if you look at an indian takeaway it's just so many different things going on there and what india did post-colonialization was build a brilliant secular society that wasn't reliant on any one religion and then modi came along and built a thing called hindu nationalism which is totally oxymoronic because that's india for just the hindus whereas hinduism is saying all religions are legitimate all indians are legitimate indians and i found that fascinating so Doing what we do kind of gives us the ability to look at problems in a slightly different way and see them sometimes with a bit more clarity and focus. And recently I was invited onto the Adweek to do the talk on the Great Mind stage about potentially the future of London, what's the future of London and what's the future of brands. And so therefore it enabled me to engage with our team to figure out how we theorise what the future of London could be, what its meaning could be and how that creates a slipstream for the future of brands. If I'm lucky enough to talk with, I don't know, a great, you know, an architect or a designer or something cultural luminary, and I'll often say to designers, you know, can one design a way out of a particular crisis? We've had lots to choose from in the last couple of years, whether they're political or natural, ecological, as that big one is at the moment. A lazy question, Bob, but I'll put it to you anyway, then. Is there a way we can brand ourselves out of some of the big crises we face? I mean, COVID's maybe... Not the best example, but you know, look at, say, the climate crisis, which informs every conscious, purposeful business, which should be informing every decision they're making. Can branding help to address the climate crisis? Because a lot of people who have skin in the game say, well, just on our own, we can't do it. Or, you know, we can't just trust scientists or we can't just trust governments or nation states. 
can the power of brand reach far enough even to begin to address a, a crisis on that scale in your view? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. So we have no democratic lever to pull to manage the climate crisis. We've got 195 countries, that's 195 presidents and prime ministers each with their cabinets. So we've got roughly around about 5,000 politicians around the world in a disintegrated fashion trying to manage the climate crisis, all with different levels of maturity in terms of industrial revolution, technological revolution, economic revolutions, etc., information revolution. So... I personally, I feel I've, I've got no lever to pull to manage that. I've, you know, to to it, it crosses borders. The only lever that I can pull, that you can pull, as a consumer, and consumption is a part of this huge problem, is how you consume, is how you spend your money, and that, in effect, is a democratic act that can shape the way future consumption can change and therefore we can bring consumption to a point where we're not killing the planet anymore. And if we do that, we will start to affect changes and decisions that happen in boardrooms and that happen in product development meetings and that happen in commercial rooms. And I think that it's time for consumers to take the responsibility that, frankly, political leaders can't because had it not been for the civil rights movement in America in the 60s, there wouldn't have been the space for civil rights policy to be created. So sometimes it falls to us. We can't just always look at politicians and say, you've got it wrong. It falls to us, all these random acts of consumption, to create the space for policy to move into. And I do think that, that on the one level, then that comes down to brand. Everything that you consume is a brand. Every, you know, Literally everything is a brand, whether it's the Tory party or whether it's the Labour party or whether it's your gas, it, it comes from a brand. And so I think that's really important that we understand what it is we're consuming and we send a message. We buy the change we want to see. That's simply that. If we buy the change we want to see, we can create the change that we need to, to help prevent climate change. Lots of inspiration and lots of food for thought. What about when things don't work out? Because I guess there is that truism isn't there in many people's careers when they reflect that they learn more when things don't work than when they do do you agree with that cliche and if well whether you do or you don't perhaps you could share one or two insights that you've garnered from moments that have been more challenging than maybe than you expected yeah i think the single biggest thing that we've learned at fresh britain is not to chase perfection i think perfection as a goal has its limitations in terms of leadership because if you if you try and perfection always searches for the for the quickest, most efficient solution. And what that ignores is that it diminishes the space for other people to help create the solutions. And what it also ignores is the wider holes of experience, intelligence and knowledge that can be generated when you don't always go for the quickest, most efficient route and you include more people. I think if you search for imperfection in terms of productivity, 100% perfection is a lot slower than 95%. And 95% may be a lot higher than your clients 100% so you can be much more productive with 95% and 100% and I think finally on perfection is for brands and we've built this into many of our brands is don't strive for perfection because perfection is respected but it's not loved and if you represent perfection then people can't come into you they can't see themselves in your story so if you're able to show fragilities, if you're able to show vulnerabilities, both in product design and in brand design, then people can project themselves into your story and you'll go from being respected to being loved. It's why Djokovic 
looks up into the crowd after a match and wonders why he's not loved, and it's because he's a metronome of perfection. Yet when we had McEnroe, everyone loves him because they can see themselves in his own frailties. So I think the search for perfection is actually a mistake, and that's one that we previously made, but through our journey from Luke Skywalker to Obi-Wan, we now kind of realise that actually it, there's a lot to be said for imperfection. And we started, I think, with Lendl, didn't we, back in the, well, a few, few decades yep. ago, and we've come right up to, to Djokovic. Uh, and so. Well, yeah, and the other one thing I would advise anyone is marry well, because I'm co-founder of Fresh Britain with my wife, Sophie. She's the intelligent one in all of this, and she helped us codify through, she did a PhD in artificial intelligence design and helped codify our process with... Um, Central St. Martins, which has enabled us to scale in a way we couldn't have done before, freed up our creativity. Fantastic. Well, look, Bob, it's a delight to hear from you. Thanks for sharing some insights with us. Thank you very much. Big thanks as ever to Bob Sheard, the co-founder of Fresh Britain. To find out more, head to freshbritain.com. And there'll be some more brand-focused stories from Bob in the weeks and months ahead here on The Entrepreneur, so do keep an ear for that. This programme was mixed and edited by Jack Dewars. My thanks to him, as always. And thanks once again to Sam Hornsby and everyone at Triptych and to Bob and the Fresh Britain crew. You can listen again and find out more about the programme at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. Write to me at te at monocle.com and of course, subscribe to Monocle magazine for more great business inspiration in print every month direct to your door. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. The Entrepreneurs.